Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Okay, good morning and welcome to a brand new day. Nice to have your company wherever you're listening to us around Australia or elsewhere on the World Wide Web. We are live between 7 and 9 Australian Eastern Standard Time, of course, and we're on starterfm.com.au on the iHeartRadio platform, on TuneIn and on podcast or the Prawncast as well. So great to have your company. We do it all thanks to our friends at uh, Psychology Services New South Wales. Now you might want to check them out online. Psychology Service New South Wales.com.au. Busy program this morning. Thank you to everybody who's interacted. with the content over the last few days. We did our very first Facebook Live the other night. Gee, it was fun. I was, I don't know why, but I was nervous. I really was. It went quite well. I think it's already uh, got quite a few thousand views, which is fantastic. So I'll do another one probably tonight. Um, Okay, uh, now let's have a little look at some of the news stories that will follow up today. Uh, A couple of interviews. I'm going to catch up with Courtney Hussos, um, Labor MP New South Wales. There's an upper house inquiry that's looking into why the Paratay government has spent less than a billion dollars it promised in the state budget on fixing up our education system, in particular school infrastructure. So I'll get to that story with Courtney very soon. Um, Now I mentioned yesterday on the Facebook page and we had a discussion about it too in a video, Uh, inflation will deliver record uh, boosts to welfare payments. Yep, the pensioners and those on new start allowance etc are expected to get a bit of a payday come September. So pensioners and other welfare recipients struggling to make ends meet amid soaring costs of living will receive one of the biggest increases to their fortnightly payments in years. I'll go through the details of that story for you very soon. Do you know a problem gambler? Are you a problem gambler? Uh, Maybe there's someone in your family, a close friend. Well, family members of gambling addicts could have them banned from clubs under a radical new proposal from Clubs New South Wales. I'll give you the details about that. Uh, Discussions still continue uh, some three decades this has been going on for about whether or not raising the Warragamba Dam is uh, the right way to go. I'll give you an update on that story that uh, was in the, uh, the media yesterday. I'm going to catch up with the wonderful Van Batten. Uh, she'll be my major interview for this morning's program. Uh, we'll chew the fat on a number of issues. Uh, we'll talk about her recent bout of COVID-19 um, and why we still should do everything we damn well can to protect ourselves and our loved ones. Uh, Van is much better now, but she was quite sick, uh, sick with COVID for uh, a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll chew the fat on politics and a whole range of other issues. Find out exactly what she's been talking about on her very good high-rated podcast the week on Wednesday that she does with a partner, Ben Davison. So Van Batten will be my special guest very soon. We'll check the news for you on the half hour. Uh, thanks to Air News and play some great tunes for you. So let's get into it. It's a Thursday. Morning, the 14th day of July. 
And this is Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back to the program, Marcus Paul in the morning. All thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Well, what do you make of this? Um, The young and the voiceless, cancer culture's toll. This story uh, emerged yesterday in the press. They've been dubbed the Quiet Australians, and now a new report shows that almost one in four of us have been forced to hide our views on social issues and politics as a result of cancel culture. Younger Australians in particular have been the most affected, with almost half saying they have struggled to be their authentic selves for fear of judgment or exclusion. Now, the report is called Cancel Culture and Acceptance in Australia, exploring Australians' acceptance of others and their worldview. And it's been written by social demographer Mark McCrindle and examined the views of more than a thousand people across the country. Now, in this report, people apparently reported being afraid to express their views over red button issues like the abortion debate in the United States, to parenting styles, religious beliefs, and even the ethics of environmental shopping, such as not using plastic bags. Now, the research also uncovered a change in attitudes about the idea of tolerance. Once, it meant accepting a person regardless of the other person's views. Now Mr McCrindle has picked up a shift. People are saying they won't accept the other person if they don't accept their views as well. So in other words, they're being cancelled. Only 38% of Australians say they would accept an individual regardless of their views. And that's compared to 50% back in 2020. Now, Mr. McCrindle said, you get cancelled, you get pulled if you don't actively support someone's worldview or if you don't behave like me. It's very tribal. But this is not a game of football we're talking about. Accepting people for who they are is a foundation to our society. Now, Mr. McCrindle's report found 40% of Generation Z, those aged in their 20s, say they are increasingly self-censoring compared to 21% of baby boomers. Meanwhile, 35% of those born between 1980 and 1994, otherwise known as Generation Y or Gen Y, said they hid their opinions, 35%. But it's the baby boomers and Generation X who most hate the onset of cancel culture at 63% with the baby boomers and 62% for Gen X. The fact that one in four Australians have to hide their beliefs on social issues, public policy and even the political party they support highlights the challenges we face in our public discourse, according to Mr McCrindle. Young Australians have been the most impacted by this cancel culture. Now, yesterday, News Limited, in their report, went to the outspoken One Nation MP Mark Latham And he said he speaks to public servants regularly who tell them they disagree with courses on woke topics but can't speak out for fear of losing their jobs. They say to me, I'm here to make the trains run on time, make schools better and so on, but they have to do these woke ceremonies, courses and activities that don't solve any problems or else they risk losing their jobs, according to Mark Latham. Meanwhile, uh, Mr McCrindle found the topic most people felt they had to hide was beliefs on social issues. 
followed by politics and policy issues, political parties, views on vaccinations, parenting styles, values and faith, and ethical and environmental shopping, for goodness sake. Well, what do you make of it all? I'll put a post up on the Facebook page and I'd love to get your thoughts on it. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning brought to you by Psychology Services New South Wales. You can visit them online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Well, as the rains have moved away, the cleanup continues in a number of areas. Uh, this time last week, all we could talk about, of course, was the ongoing flood disaster. Uh, recovery payments are slowly being meted out to those worst affected by the floods, which will be welcome, but in a lot of cases, it won't be enough. I mean, look at the poor business owners in Camden and Richmond, Windsor, and even up further north in places like Wollombi and Broke and elsewhere. Uh, the big cleanup continues and the costs are mounting. All right, well, of course, the debate will continue on whether or not to raise Warragamba Dam. You know the position of the New South Wales government here. If it was up to the Minister for Western Sydney, Stuart Ayres, and the Perrottet government, they'd start construction tomorrow. But 30 years after raising the dam to protect homes in flood-prone Western Sydney was first proposed, so this debate has been going on for three decades now, the federal government is waiting on environmental assessments to evaluate the project. Now, the New South Wales government, and I've spoken about this before, they are seeking a 50-50 funding split with the Commonwealth to raise the dam by 14 metres. That's the dam wall. And in January this year, they submitted an early business case to Infrastructure Australia seeking support. But the information supplied was not sufficient for the federal agency to evaluate the potential cost-benefit of the build. We advised that further information and analysis was required before we could proceed with an evaluation. That was according to an Infrastructure Australia spokesman. Infrastructure Australia is aware an environmental impact statement is underway and expects to receive the Warragamba Dam business case when the environmental impact statement is finalised and Infrastructure New South Wales is ready to progress the proposal. Now, Natural Disaster and Emergency Management Minister Murray Watt said the government was keen to better understand the project once Infrastructure Australia had received the information. Now, it's understood Water New South Wales is currently reviewing and responding to the more than 3,000 submissions it received from the public when the environmental impact statement for the dam project was published for feedback last year. Now, once this is completed, it is expected the study will be provided to Infrastructure Australia, which will then evaluate the project. Of course, debate about raising the dam wall has been ongoing for almost three decades, as I mentioned, with a 1995 proposal initially suggesting lifting the height by some 23 metres. But the then Bob Carr state government instead decided to manage flood risk in Western Sydney by upgrading roads to make evacuation easier as well as making the dam safer by building a spillway to release excess water. And look, that's ongoing. 
Back in 2017, the state government released a report which recommended raising the dam wall by 14 metres as, quote, the best option to reduce the risks to life, property and community assets posed by floodwaters, unquote. Now, back then in 2017, it was estimated this would cost around $1.6 billion. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese just a couple of days ago said he was primarily focused on the immediate recovery from this month's floods and was not yet focused on a long-term mitigation option. Now, the PM said, and I quote, proposals will go through, environmental processes will go through, business cases that will occur, but what we're dealing with at the moment is the immediate recovery concerns. The debate will rage on. If you want to have your say, you can do so on the Facebook page, Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, all thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. This is Marcus Paul in the morning. So I thought I'd start today with uh, that big news from yesterday in relation to uh, public welfare. Now, I put a post up and a video on the Facebook page. Thank you for your comments in relation to it. Uh, But the big news was that pensioners and other welfare recipients struggling to make ends meet amid soaring cost of living pressure will soon receive one of the biggest increases to their fortnightly payments in at least a decade. Though inflation has dramatically increased the costs of basic goods, we all know that, figures obtained by News Corp show Australians on welfare payments, including the pension, job seeker and youth allowance, will receive a significant boost when rates are indexed come September. Now, assuming the growth in the CPI, that's the Consumer Price Index, in the June quarter is between 2.8 and 4.8%, Australians currently on the $900.80 basic rates age pension would receive as much as $43.20 extra a fortnight. Now, modelling shows at the very least the pension payment would go up by about $25.50, significantly higher than the last increase. Now, of course, six months ago, the pension increased by $20.20, which was the largest jump in around nine years. Now, combined, the two increases would ensure welfare payments kept up, or at least kept pace, with the 5 to 7% headline inflation rate for the rest of the year uh, to the end of June quarter. Now, based on the same consumer price index assumptions, the current job seeker rate of $642.70 per fortnight would increase by at least $18.20 and by as much as $30.80, while youth allowance would be boosted between $8.90 and $15 on top of the $313.80 current rate. Now, the final indexation will be determined, of course, in September, with the extra cash expected to help Australians on welfare meet the rising cost of groceries, fuel and other necessities. Now, to the feedback on this. Council on the Ageing Chief Executive Ian Yates said pensioners should expect a very robust increase, which would be, of course, strongly welcomed. Uh, Now, Mr Yates said, we are currently looking forward to the increase, particularly as so many of the things most impacted by inflation are basic goods. 
But he did say, this is Ian Yates from the Council of the Ageing, he did say if inflation continues to soar, older Australians who rely entirely on the pension as their only source of income would feel the pain of higher prices again, soon as the indexation was only retrospective. Yeah, seen as, of course, the indexation, well, it is retrospective. Now, given indexation is six monthly, Mr Yates says it can mean pensioners get squeezed pretty badly. Meanwhile, National Seniors Australia Chief Executive Ian Henschke said indexation of the pension would benefit millions of retirees, but other options to boost the wages of older people should not be discounted. Yeah, this is something that uh, Ian Henschke's been speaking about for quite some while. He says the federal government must look at adjusting the pension system to allow pensioners to work more without losing their pension. And that's something I agree entirely with Ian Henske on. Uh, He said with job vacancies in Australia jumping by 100,000 in the last six months to 480,000 positions available as of June, pensioners represented a, quote, standing army of potential workers. Even if it's only a COVID measure for the next three years, it should be considered, according to Ian Henske, of course, who is the chief advocates of National Seniors Australia. I tend to agree with him on that. I mean, why on earth wouldn't uh, employers take advantage of the so-called grey army? And when we've got so many jobs going, the problem is, and I hate saying it, but there's a bit of ageism out there, and that does cause some issues with older people trying to access employment. And then, of course, the more they work, the less pension they get. So there's no real incentive. Do you agree, disagree? Let me know. Uh, that post is up on the Facebook page. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul. Alrighty, welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning. Thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. Look, I'm not a gambler. Um, I can't remember. Look, I'll buy a lottery ticket, of course, if, uh, you know, the the Powerball is jackpotted to 80 million bucks. I'll I'll certainly spend nine or 12 bucks on a game on Lotto. But uh, ultimately, I've I've never really enjoyed um, pissing away money in poker machines. That's just not me. And I'm not into betting on sports. And I certainly am not into horse racing. Uh, But I know a lot of people are. Gambling, though, is terribly addictive, and gambling can ruin lives, particularly when the gambler is an addict. Well, a story is out. Families to get power to have loved ones banned from gambling venues. What do you make of this story? Family members of gambling addicts could have them banned from clubs under a radical new proposal by Clubs New South Wales. Under the draft plan, responsible gambling officers would be mandatory in every club, along with training for all staff in identifying problem gamblers. How do you identify a problem gambler? I suppose if the same person rocks up day in, day out, putting money in a machine with a glum look on their face, I suppose they could be a problem gambler. Anyway, the the gaming code of practice would allow family to apply for an exclusion if they feared a loved one was in trouble. An independent panel would then decide how long the exclusion would be for. 
Club's New South Wales Chief Executive, Josh Landis, said the proposed measures highlighted the club industry's genuine commitment to protecting members and patrons. He told the Daily Telegraph yesterday, if someone appears to have a gambling problem, clubs will intervene and offer assistance. If the person refuses to accept that help, clubs can then have them banned from their venues. Some of the signs of a problem gambler include seeking credit for gambling, borrowing money from other patrons, or admitting to stealing money to gamble. You know you've got a problem if you're doing any of those things. The proposal includes responsible gambling officers to be designated in every club and training for all venue staff in spotting problem gambling traits. Now, Mr Landis, of course, uh, who's the club's New South Wales Chief Executive Officer, he says that club patrons shouldn't be alarmed if they are approached by staff to check if they are okay. Mr Landis said this will be part of our new approach to responsible gambling. Clubs will come down hard on anyone suspected of money laundering, well, yes, where a lifetime ban will then be imposed. Why it's not already, I don't know, but that's a part of this new proposal. Now, Clubs New South Wales say the industry is committed to helping police identify anyone suspected of spending the proceeds of crime in a club. Now, Mr Lander said while we await the findings of the New South Wales Crime Commission's inquiry, the community can feel confident that clubs are unwilling to be used as pawns by crooks to hide their ill-gotten gains. Meanwhile, hospitality and racing MP Kevin Anderson said he looked forward to working with the industry to fine-tune the code of practice and see it rolled out across New South Wales. The announcement of a code of practice by Clubs New South Wales supports work that is already underway by the government, including enhanced responsible gambling training for staff, strengthened support services and cashless gaming machine trials. So these are all measures that have been put in place so far, but I have to wonder whether they're having any effect. What do you make of this story? Families to get power to have loved ones banned from gambling venues. Well, I suppose it could be a good start if it stops people's lives from being ruined. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back, Marcus Paul in the morning on this Thursday, the 14th day of July. Now, here's a nice story. Uh, in the bigsmoke.com.au, of course, as you know, I, I write some articles for Alex Chelios and her wonderful publication, but a story that popped up yesterday from one of uh, our writers made me, uh, well, I was very interested. Apparently, our emotional response to happy and sad music is dependent upon where we live. Now, a study led by Western Sydney University claims our emotional response to happy and sad music may be dependent on cultural conditioning. Yeah. We know the Doobie Brothers want us to listen to it, listen to the music. The Beach Boys hear it, I hear the music. And the Village People can't stop the music. And ABBA, well, they paid tribute to it and paid thanks to it. Music, it bonds us, it moves us, it inspires us, it motivates and it soothes us. It's everywhere, but the same tunes don't always mean the same thing to everyone. 
Now, a new study led by Western Sydney University's Marx Institute for Brain Behaviour and Development has found that our perceptions of happy and sad music, or in music language, major and minor chords, may depend on our associative conditioning or our culture. Now, the study, uh, conducted jointly with the Australian National University and the University of Constance in Germany, exposed 170 participants in a remote cloud forest region of Papua New Guinea across several groups and communities to Western-influenced tonal music. I would have loved to have been a part of that study. I'd love to, what, I'm sure they got paid. I'd love to be paid to sit around and listen to music all day. Anyway, the participants were presented with major and minor melodies and chord progressions or cadences and then asked which made them happier. The researchers then repeated the experiment with a group of musicians, 19 of them, and non-musicians, 60, in Sydney, Australia, and compared the emotional perceptions and preferences of all of the participants. Now, one of the groups in Papua New Guinea who had experienced sporadic exposure to Western music more than seven years prior to the experiment demonstrated no association between major chords and happiness. Dr Andrew Milne from the Western Sydney University said they're just as likely to choose the minor chord or scale as being happier than the major. The Sydney Musician Group had the strongest emotional effect, which Milne described as absolutely decisive. It's almost 100% probability that if they hear something in major, they will say that's happier than something that's in minor. The study also found convincing evidence that familiarity plays a role, as the PNG groups that had some exposure to Western music also associated major notes with happiness. Now, we know music is a vital part of most cultures every day. In Western cultural celebrations such as birthdays, weddings and funerals, music makes us dance or feel reflective or melancholy. Movies, television shows and commercials are all underscored with soundtracks and songs to evoke emotion. So while we may listen to music to regulate our moods, it seems the music we choose might also be influenced by our psychological familiarity and repeated exposure to certain tunes, and our associative conditioning and how we actually relate to it. Look, it certainly quantifies why musicals such as Jersey Boys, The King and I and The Rocky Horror Picture Show get bums on seats through every reincarnation decades after their original premiere. The music that our parents drove us to distraction with, and in many cases we hated listening to as kids, gets in our psyche and reshapes how we relate to it as we get older. And it will likely do it for generations to come. Yeah, what a great story that is. I love music. How about you? Marcus Paul in the morning. All right, welcome back to the program. Thanks to Psychology Services New South Wales. You can check them out online, psychologyservicenewsouthwales.com.au. Let's move now to education. Well, the latest New South Wales budget shows that the Perite government in New South Wales has under-delivered on 113 school infrastructure projects, spending $1.26 billion less on school infrastructure than was promised in the 2021-22 budget. 
In that budget, the Liberal National Government promised to spend $2.71 billion on major school infrastructure projects. However, analysis from the 2022-23 budget shows that the New South Wales Government failed to meet its spending commitments on a majority of its promised projects from last year's budget. Now, to talk about this, and she's been in a uh, an inquiry, an upper house inquiry into all of this um, over the last day or so, is Labor MP Courtney Hussos. Courtney, good morning to you. Well, good morning, Marcus. Great to be with you. The government's just not committing to its promises when it comes to education in New South Wales. That's exactly right. So what we've heard consistently through the inquiry, Marcus, is the government has completely failed in planning for schools, particularly in our new growth areas around northwestern and southwestern Sydney. Yeah. So even if they are building new schools, they're they're, they're at capacity within a couple of years, meaning that they're plonking demountables on that valuable play space. And so that's then having really uh, very real effects on then the way that kids are able to learn because we know they need to get out, they need to burn that energy before they can get back into the classroom and learn. And so it's having a real effect not only on on their um, on the way they can interact with their peers, but also on their on their learning capabilities as well. Well, absolutely. And and look, uh, I've spoken about this before. That you know, people that move into these new growth areas in Sydney's uh, west, in you know, Rouse Hill, Box Hill, areas around Tallawong, um, you know, these uh, areas that have, you've got housing developments going up absolutely everywhere, uh, with the promise that infrastructure will follow. I mean, people are paying a pretty penny, as you would know, Courtney, in in stamp duty. Um, you know, they're living the the great Australian dream. They're getting, you know, a, a brick veneer around them, but the, in some cases, they still have nowhere to send their kids for education. Now, an example, $13.9 million was promised for a new primary school in Talawong in the financial year, but this year's budget shows that only $250,000 was spent. That's, that's $13.6 million under. That's exactly right, Marcus. That's a great example up there in Talawong where you're right, families are making sacrifices, they're moving to these areas, they're, um, they're purchasing their homes and, they, and they're expecting and they're being promised by the government a local primary school yeah. and it's just not being delivered. What we had this morning in Gregory Hills, again in the southwest of Sydney, but a similar kind of story, we've heard families who have moved into the area who actually bought when their children, before their children went to primary school those kids are now heading off to high school and the school still hasn't been constructed this is uh, you're you're exactly right there are families who are building their lives around promises and the yeah. government's just not delivering well i mean you're holding a, an upper house inquiry into that today and i hope questions are being asked along these lines and, and why is it the perite government can find bloody you know millions upon millions of dollars to upgrade something like panthers stadium and, and buy up land there but they can't <laughs> seemingly find the money for to educate our children in Sydney's western suburbs. I think the priorities are all uh, mucked about at the moment. And the government has to explain, you're exactly right, Marcus, how they've got this planning so wrong. If we look at just over the hill from Gregory Hills, where there yeah. is no primary school that's been promised, at Gledswood Hills, within two years of opening, they had 18 demountables on their play space. Mm. Now, 
how did how did the government get the planning so wrong that they built a school for 500 kids and within two years of it opening it's at almost double that capacity they need to explain these why this is happening and why they are not delivering the the lo- the quality local schools built to capacity that that the local families deserve well the argument is that after what more than a decade 12 years in charge in fact the government is failing to keep up with the infrastructure needs of families in New South Wales uh, and education outcomes as we know have continued to decline um, like I say it's it's a priority thing I, I know that you know we could if we all had a money tree we'd build everything we possibly could but it's about priorities and and in particular in areas of the western suburbs of Sydney the the growth areas where the government as I've mentioned before manages to extract a hell of a amount in, in taxes and excises, uh, people that move into these areas should get the infrastructure they're promised. Exactly, exactly, Marcus. And and we know that families make decisions based on local schools and what they're what they're planning for their for their families. And that's what we heard from parents today. They yeah. just want openness and transparency from the government. They need to be making decisions and planning for their family's future, for their children's future. And they expect the government to be honest and upfront about that. But after you're exactly right, twelve years in government, this government thinks that they can make promises and not deliver. And that's just it's not fair for families who are working hard, trying to pay the mortgage and just want a quality local public school that they can send their kids to. Yeah. All right, Courtney, thank you for coming on the program. I appreciate it. My absolute pleasure. I look forward to coming back soon. Van Batham, hello there. Oh, Marcus Paul, my delight. How are you, darling? I'm not too bad. Look, right off the bat, congratulations to you, and, uh, and Ben, on the wonderful success of the week on Wednesday, half oh a million God, downloads. So much. Half a million. I'm, I'm sorry, half a million downloads? What? It's it's kind of incredible. It's It was our lockdown project to start the podcast. Yeah. And it's sort of like if we were opening a sourdough bakery. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we, we started the podcast for ourselves and just thought we'd probably be speaking to our mums and one or two friends. Yeah. And it's just been a runaway success. And that's got to do with our audience and the fact there's actually an audience of people who want to talk about lefty issues and left-wing economics and progressive policy. There's actually a lot of us. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, it's great. I, I suspected, I suspected there were a lot more of us out there than we thought. Well, now we know there are, there are at least half a million. So well, that's true, and and importantly as well, um, there's been, as you know, a shift. Uh, we've got a new government, and uh, you know it's pretty evident. I don't know whether you've seen the photograph yet. I've just uh, put it up on my socials. Anthony Albanese, in a in a gesture of a hug, has just eased tensions with the Solomon Islands. One hug. Sometimes that's all you need, a hug. Oh, it's been incredible to watch, particularly the energy put into foreign affairs by the Albanese government. And to see, you know, Penny Wong, who has always been an exemplary parliamentary performer, as anyone who saw her, like, massacres of the former government MPs at Senate uh, Senate Estimates would be well aware. But to see her in her element 
um, repairing our relationships with Pacific nations, being able to speak Bahasa when she was in Malaysia, yeah. the fact that she's taken, you, you know, like a proactive engagement with China, who is, of course, our largest trading partner, whatever yep. our criticisms of Chinese state authoritarianism may be, obviously a very delicate uh, relationship and one that has impacts for Australians mm. to just see the seriousness with which the new government has engaged all of those relationships has been really actually impressive and it's interesting speaking to people across the political spectrum who respect the work the new government is doing in that area and it's important because it doesn't matter it, it shouldn't matter who you vote for yeah you should be able to have an inherent confidence that whoever has been elected is acting in the best interests of Australians and our community and our national interest and I think a lot of people feel very confident whether they're left right or indifferent yeah that that is the seriousness with which the Albanese Labor government is taking the job. Yep, and look, there was another announcement today which I think was uh, important for uh, well, for millions of Australians. Pensioners and other welfare recipients struggling to make ends meet. We know that uh, inflation is, is up and uh, the cost of living pressures are biting on everybody, but probably no more the, for you know than people who are on welfare payments. But come September, we will see a significant increase, if you like, in, in these payments, which is wonderful. I mean, pensioners finally got a, a little bit of a reprieve um, a few months ago with a, a rate rise of $20 extra a fortnight. That was the highest in nine years. But within uh, another couple of months, uh, in line with consumer price index um, and, and basically the growth uh, in inflation, they should receive an extra $43.20 extra a fortnight. Now, that will go some way to helping. Yeah, I mean, it's important that we look at welfare in a holistic sense. It's great, there's going to be more money. But the other thing too is that we have a government that's looking at the other pillars of the welfare state. Welfare is not just about a, a cash payment. Welfare is about uh, governments that are investing in accessible health care and governments that are investing in educational and training opportunities. We've got the job summit coming up. Yeah. Really crucially in this country, we have a federal government that is finally, finally willing to do something about uh, public and social housing to relieve people of housing pressure, which is an important issue, whether you're in Tasmania, particularly in Hobart, um, or whether you're struggling to, you know, get a roof over your head close to your job in Sydney, Melbourne, or anywhere else. And, and this is great. Like, this is the difference. I have no greater contempt for the analysis of anyone as I do for the people who tell me that Labor and Liberal are just the same. Because already, what are we, six weeks in, mm. we're living in a very different country to what we were living in six weeks ago, where the creation of opportunity for people to engage their society, to, to be safe and to thrive is being facilitated by a progressive government. And how do you, um, how do we dismiss the smears that, that are inevitably coming from uh, from the right, from uh, certain sections of the media? I mean, no doubt uh, there'll be a meme made by uh, Liberal supporters about Anthony Albanese, who's um, had a warm embrace with the Solomon Islands Prime Minister. How do you dismiss all of that negativity? Because some out there still want to play the divisive game and be divisive and, and tear us apart for good. Goodness sake. 
Well, let's talk about democracy. And I think the United States is a really good example of of what happens when people think somebody else is taking care of democracy on their behalf. Sure. Democracy is a use it or lose it enterprise. And in Australia, like in this wonderful country that I love so much, we have a democratic system that enfranchises everybody. Every single one of us gets to vote and it is the responsibility of the government of the day through the Electoral Commission mm. to forever ensure that the ballot boxes reach every single one of us. Now, with that, you know, with that enfranchisement comes the responsibility as voters of continually engaging in the democratic process, whether that's just seeking out uh, statement like primary sources on mm. what the government are doing, engaging with media, watching Question Time as my mother does. My <laughs> mother absolutely loves a bit of Question Time. Yeah talking to your friends and neighbours, seeking out different points of view, making sure you're always part of a conversation that enables you not to just take things as read but to interrogate them. And, yes, I think we're all very aware of the fact that there are media commentators who are aligned to one ideology or another. I'm very honest about the fact that I'm a Labor voting left-wing person because mm -hmm. I trust my readers to be able to make up their own minds without me having to pretend that, you know, like that I don't have ideological loyalties or a fixed point of view. Yeah. You know, I think that's a really important part of it. If you're a progressive person, you shouldn't be afraid of reading right-wing comments. It's not going to turn you right-wing unless that's where your own opinions are going. But you can bring your critical analysis to go... If this is from this perspective, what are the agreed facts? Like, what role is this commentary playing in a discussion around what's going on? Yeah. How do I compare that to, like, what did Albanese say about this? What did Penny Wong say? What did the leader of the opposition say? Mm. What are various journalists on the political spectrum saying? And, you know, that's actually quite a fun thing to do. Absolutely. Like, what an absolute privilege as a democratic citizen to have newspapers and social media and a government that are constantly talking about the decisions mm. that are being made in our name to represent our country and, you know, represent our country's reality. But like I said, it's use it or lose it. Like, be part of the conversation. Absolutely. Ask questions, interrogate things. Yep. No, well, well said. You've been a little bit crook lately. Um, we, unfortunately, we're looking at, um, particularly here in New South Wales, a, a new, I don't want to say surge because I hate being alarmist, but we've got an issue with the cruise ship again um, and we've got people effectively um, coming down with COVID-19 each day. There's 10,000-plus people that currently have it in the state. Um, uh, today alone and on it goes you had COVID-19 just recently um, yes and, and I'm still recovering from it and it's yeah. been an absolute slog and it is not the sniffle that it was a few months ago yeah so the Omicron variant has developed there yep. are now variants of the variant and when I was speaking to doctors after I tested positive and I was like my symptoms seem quite strong like i'm concerned they said that this is the reality of the the new variants that are circulating in the community it's not the sniffles anymore mm. i had horrific sinusitis Ooh. um fatigue headaches uh, it affects people differently my beautiful partner ben was absolutely crippled with joint pain and chills and fevers and vomiting other friends of mine had like horrible problems with nausea 
couldn't eat. Like, it does affect people differently. Yeah. And it, uh, there is a growing concern from the medical community that that um, a return to some restrictions is going to be necessary to curb the spread. Unfortunately, like, you can declare all the freedom days that you like. It doesn't yeah. necessarily give you freedom. Living with the virus may mean a return to mask mandates and other basic health procedures. As someone who's had coronavirus, can I just say this outright? You do not want to get it. You want to wear a mask wherever you go, especially if you're going to be in a closed area. You want to keep testing if you're going to be around vulnerable people. They're, like Coronavirus Absolutely. is currently the leading cause of death in this country. It is not a sniffle. It is quite serious. And uh, Health Minister Mark Butler has said the government are not ruling anything out. They are watching how the situation develops. But seriously, like, if if all it takes for you to not be completely taken out by coronavirus is to wear a mask, wash your hands and maintain social distancing, you should absolutely do it. They've now made fourth boosters available. I recommend everybody get that booster. Hmm. The whole time Ben and I were sick, all we could think was, my God, what would this be like if we weren't triple vaxxed? Well, that's right. The extremity of it would have been terrifying. It was bad enough with us vaxxed to our capacity at the time. Mm. And certainly, I wouldn't wish coronavirus on my worst enemy. All right, Van, always good to chat. I know you're you're really busy at the moment. Um, I I can't wait for the next instalment of the week on Wednesday. Uh, You got something coming up in The Guardian soon? Yes, I do. I'll uh, have something out in The Guardian next week. But obviously, um, week on Wednesday, it being Wednesday, we will have a show come out tonight. Uh, We've been running around, so it will be delivered slightly later than usual. But it will be there, and we'd love people to join us. Can't wait. All right, Van, thank you for your time as always. Uh, We will catch up very soon. All right. You take care, darling. Bye-bye. All right, well, that'll do us for today. Thank you very much for being a part of the program. Thanks to our friends at Psychology Services New South Wales. Uh, Don't forget, tonight we'll be back online with another one of these Facebook Live videos. I look forward to that so you can tune in. Uh, We'll probably do it again uh, same time as Tuesday around about a quarter past eight. Just keep an eye on the, uh, the Facebook page. Keep an eye on the socials there for all the details. But another Facebook Live video we'll do tonight. And um, it's an opportunity for you to have your say um, and get online with us as I talk about a couple of the news stories of the day. And you can send me your comments or just say hi or, or do absolutely anything you want. <laughs> okay. Anyway, we'll do that tonight uh, just after eight o'clock. Uh, another Facebook live video. Podcasts, uh, well, my chat with Van Batten and everything we spoke about this morning will be up online very soon in another one of our prawncasts. And look, if you've been listening to them and downloading them, thank you. Uh, we hit that milestone over the weekend last week, 60,000 downloads. Nowhere near as close as Van Batten's half a million, but hey, I'll get there one day. Anyway, so um, we'll have a podcast up a little later. 
Um, now, if you wouldn't mind, please check out our uh, our support page. The GoFundMe link is up on the Facebook page. If you if you're able to, you can buy us a coffee as well. We're on that uh, <laughs> that link. Here he is asking for charity again. Well, a man has to eat, you know. <laughs> at the end of the day, all right. Have a wonderful day. We'll be joining you again tomorrow, Australian Eastern Standard Time, between 7 and 9am, Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform, and, of course, on TuneIn. Look after each other. Marcus Paul in the morning. I'll see you tomorrow. Bye for now. You ain't heard nothing yet. <laughs>